Do keep your Bible open at this passage. Uh, I once got lost. I was gloriously unaware of the fact that I was lost. I was three years of age, and uh, at that age, really, you're not conscious of what it means to be lost or, or found, for that matter, but I was lost. I'd been playing, apparently, out in our backyard. We lived on a farm in those days, and uh, uh, my mother came out to find me, and I wasn't there. There were nothing but fields and woods nearby. She went into the woods and called me, and there was no response, went out into the fields and looked for me, and there was no sign of me. The only thing nearby was a busy country road, and she went down to the road and couldn't see me. And either way she looked, no sign of me. She spent several hours looking for me, and eventually when she found me, she found me in the village about two miles away in the backyard of a friend playing happily. I can remember actually being in the backyard and playing there. There were various things that I had always enjoyed playing with whenever we went to visit these people, and I'd obviously decided in my wisdom and impetuosity even then to go and do my own thing. I had been lost, and my mother eventually eventually, after searching, found me. The mission of God is a search and rescue mission. That's the bottom line of what the book of Acts teaches about the mission of God, and it's that that is our subject this evening. Because the purpose of God has been revealed in the book of Acts especially as that of seeing his church both well-established in the world and reaching out beyond the fringes of Jerusalem and Judea and the localities in which it was first birthed in order to reach the unreached peoples of the world, that they might come to know the Lord and believe in Him. The Acts of the Apostles is built upon this premise. The premise is that Jesus Christ is the King. He is already the King. He sits already on the throne of David, and he reigns from heaven over the affairs of the world, and especially reigns on behalf of his church in the world. As the king, he has sent out his ambassadors into all the earth to proclaim his name. He has given them commissions, as you give a commission to an ambassador to do a piece of work for the power that they represent. He has sent them His Holy Spirit to indwell them and to bring to their mind and to put before their eyes the truths that He once communicated. The revealed will of God in the Old Covenant as well as in the New Covenant is all one piece. In all of the Scriptures, the mission of God is that the good news should go out from Zion into all the ends of the earth in anticipation of a day when there will be a brand new creation of all things. And there's a sense in which, as the ambassadors go out into all the earth, and as they touch this continent and that continent, these people and that people, they are placing upon those people the purpose of God one day to reconcile people from every tribe and nation and to make one new people of God. That is the great plan of the Bible. 
And in the book of Acts, this great plan of a new creation has begun to happen as barriers of ethnicity are broken down, barriers of religiosity are born, broken down. As an Ethiopian eunuch, barred both as an Ethiopian, as a Gentile, and as a eunuch from entering the kingdom of God and entering the, the temple of God, is admitted fully and freely into this new Israel of God. We've seen a Roman soldier who by background is pagan and yet he comes to trust in Christ. And so we've seen the beginning, the birthing of a new body, a church, a church comprising Jews and Gentiles. It's taking off in Antioch, we saw last time. And the prophecies of, of old are being fulfilled here in this moment. Now when we come to chapter 13, the mission of God is right up front and central in the mind of Luke. And he talks about the mission of God and God's hand, first of all. The mission of God and God's hand. How had this church come into being? Roll back the clock a few uh, months or years to Acts chapter 8 verse 1 and you discover that there had been a persecution in Jerusalem, a scattering of the Christians into the world as a result, and wherever these Christians went, they gossiped the gospel of Jesus. Ordinary believers gossiping about Jesus to whoever asked them. And their message was quite simple. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. That is, He is the Lord from heaven. He is the Lord of all. And that's been emphasized over and over again. Acts chapter 10 is one place where that happened. They preached, they proclaimed, they gossiped the Lordship of Jesus. And three times Luke records the response. In chapter 11, verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Acts 11, verse 20, uh, 24, a great many people were added to the Lord. And Acts 11, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. The hand of God did all that. The hand of God added. The hand of God caused people to believe. The hand of God built the church. And the hand of God is gloved in human instruments. God achieves his purpose using human instruments. Those ordinary believers who went to Cyprus and Cyrene were the church planters. Barnabas and Saul, who are mentioned here, were the church establishers. For Jesus had always said that the gospel was always to be proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit, working through the church, through church planters and church establishers. Barnabas had come to this brand new church, we're told, and he'd encouraged the people there to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. In other words, press on into this relationship that you have with the Lord. He saw that the grace of God needs to be established in the hearts of people. And how is that grace established in people's hearts? It's established by means of teaching. Just as physical birth requires then physical food to sustain physical life, first milk and then meat, so spiritual life requires spiritual food for the nourishment and growth of a person in Christ. First milk of the Word and then meat of the Word. People need to be established by the Word of God. That's why as Acts goes on, you find that the apostles 
make provision for their departure from this earthly scene. They appoint elders in all of the churches. And what do the elders do? In chapter 20, when the Apostle Paul is talking to the elders, he makes it clear their job is to nourish the flock of God, feed the flock of God over which he has made you overseers. Teaching is what establishes a church. And we never get beyond needing taught. We never get beyond needing our souls fed by the Word of God. There never comes a time in your Christian life when you can say, well, I've been to that church for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or 50 years. We've had great teaching. Now I can get on with doing the stuff. Because you'll always need taught. And I'll tell you why we always need taught. Because whenever you read these New Testament letters and you hear the Apostle Paul writing to these Christians and he is telling them stuff, he, again, he says again and again and again, I'm reminding you, I'm reminding you of what I said, I'm reminding you of what you learned, I'm reminding you of what you were instructed with. Why? It's because every Christian in this room has an excellent forgettery. When it comes to spiritual truth, we need to be reminded again and again. And so, in order to build a church, teaching lies not as a kind of optional extra for the classy big church in Center City. Teaching is vital for every church in every locality, no matter the intellectual level of the people who attend it. Teaching is absolutely foundational for the church of Jesus Christ to grow. Because you need to grow. You need to grow. There's so much more to learn. I've been studying the Bible now since I was, seriously, since I was 11 years of age. And every time I come to the Bible, up to this moment, every time I come to the Bible, one, it's absolutely fresh, and two, I always find something that I've never seen before. There are depths in the Scriptures in which an elephant can swim and in which a child can put his toe. Well, that's why we're told that Barnabas then goes off and brings Saul. He brings Saul there in order to teach the church uh, because the hand of God had been adding so many people to it. The second thing I want to say is the mission of God and God's church, God's hand that accomplishes the mission, God's church, which is his vehicle. We're told a number of things about this church in Acts chapter 13. It was a cosmopolitan bunch. There was a rich, a rich group of ministry personnel. There was uh, this man, Barnabas, who was born in Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean. Not a bad place to come from. Uh, there was Simeon, who was from Niger, a black African. There was Lysias from Cyrene. He was a North African, an Arab extraction. There was Menaean, who was something of an aristocrat. He'd been brought up in the household of Herod, who was a royal family in the area. And there was Saul, who was a Jew of Jews and was from Tarsus in what is now Turkey and was a well-educated Pharisee of the Pharisees. And at this point, Barnabas is mentioned first and Saul is mentioned last. But here is an international, ethnically diverse, cosmopolitan group of people in this church. And what were they doing? Well, they were worshiping the Lord. They were worshiping. The word to worship means 
to serve. They were being served by God. That's what we come to worship for. We don't come to give God anything. We don't come to contribute anything to God. We come to worship in order to be, to be served by God. He serves us His Word. He serves us the bread and the wine. He serves us the water. He, he does all the business. All we do is we sit back and we receive. We are receivers of what God is giving to His people when we come to worship. And these people were worshiping the Lord. The leaders were worshiping the Lord. And they were fasting. The Bible talks a lot about fasting. Scripture, wherever you look, Old and New Testament, Luke mentions fasting over and over again. It was seen as a form of self-discipline and often as an aid to prayer. There were partial fasts, like uh, Daniel. You remember when he decided he wouldn't eat the nice royal food that was offered to him, he would only eat lentils. That was a I don't know why he made that decision, but you know, he, he, he did that. And let's not be judgmental of him. I would take the meat and leave the lentils, but that's my own personal view. And then there were partial fasts. There were absolute fasts. In Ezra chapter 10, we read about one. We read about Moses and Elijah. They had absolute fasts, and there must have been some supernatural intervention for them to survive those. I don't recommend that you fast absolutely for 40 days and 40 nights unless you're absolutely guaranteed in supernatural intervention to keep you alive during that period. And then there are private fasts that we read about. Jesus talks about these in the Sermon on the Mount. When you fast, he said, don't display your fasting before others. Don't go around, you know, you ladies can do this perfectly well. You put on a certain kind of makeup that makes you look. If you really want to make an impression, I had a friend once who was really not very well. This is what she did. She would put on makeup to make herself look worse than she really was so that people would ask her how she was feeling. And Jesus says, don't do that when you're fasting. Don't, 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 don't make yourself look worse than you are. Don't go, oh, gaunt. Oops. All, all, my Madonna mic just uh, hit that there. That's what this is. It's called a Madonna mic for, the, for us experts in the field. Okay. Uh, uh, the, don't go around all gaunt, looking miserable, so that people ask you, why are you miserable? And you say, well, I'm fasting. Jesus says, don't do that. Private fast, you don't advertise it, you do it without talking about it. Sometimes there are congregational fasts, communal fasts, when the whole body abstains from something for a period of time, as it were, to focus on a particular issue. And that's what they were doing here. They were focusing on the issue of discerning the will of God for the next step in the journey. And as they were waiting on God, as they were serious in waiting for God, they received a revelation from God. Now remember, we're talking about a time when special revelation is still being given to the church by the apostles and the prophets. This is not that time. But the time we're writing, here, reading about, this was the time when that kind of revelation was being given. And so that's what happened. Verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And here the Spirit of God speaks for the risen Christ. The risen Christ had already said to, Paul, to, to Saul, and he'll be called Paul later in this passage, uh, the, the Lord Jesus had already said to this man that he wanted him to be a, a missionary to the, to the nations and to take the gospel to the nations. Now the Holy Spirit's confirming that. He says, he says here to this church here in Antioch, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for this work to which I have sent them. 
And this great commission that is given by the church to these two men to take the gospel with them to the nations, that great commission, having been confirmed now by the Holy Spirit and by the risen Christ and now by the apostles, remains, as it were, the commission that rests upon the rest of us who follow them in their faith. We don't need a special revelation anymore to know that the great commission is to get the gospel out to the nations. We don't need God to tell us that in, by somebody's dream because it's there in the Bible. Here it is. It's in the scripture for us to see for ourselves. Well, the church, you notice, it's a church event. The church sends them out. These men aren't ordained. They already are teachers in the church, but they, are, they have hands laid on them as a recognition and an endorsement of who they are and what they are. And they are thrust out by the church. It's a church action because the mission of God is tied up with God's church. God's hand, he does the work and uses instruments. God's church is involved in the mission of God in the world. Thirdly, the mission of God and God's decree. I want you to notice that the action of the church in verse 3 after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. That action, do you notice, is bracketed in verse 2 and then verse 4 by references to the Holy Spirit. In other words, the divine initiative is being stressed in the text. The obedient response of the believers there is put in the context of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to and among the church. And the reason that's there is to teach us a very simple lesson. The simple lesson is this. God runs the church. God runs the church. The church is God's church. It is biblically guided and biblically directed. There is a close biblical connection between Christ and his church. In the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is the up-close-and-personal representative of the risen, exalted Lord Jesus Christ. So whenever the Holy Spirit appears in the book of Acts, he is always acting in place of the Lord Jesus, instead of the Lord Jesus, as the representative of the Lord Jesus. So when you read Holy Spirit here in verse 2 and verse 4, we're being reminded that the risen Christ, who poured out the Spirit from his throne in heaven, is running the church on earth. It is both divinely created and divinely ruled. And what we're being taught in this passage is that the visible church is the representation of the reign of Christ on earth. In other words, it's, the church is not so much a kind of secular mirror of a secular welfare system. The church of Jesus Christ is identified in Scripture as that place on earth where Jesus' reign is now on particular display for the world to see. Jesus has tasked the church with missions through his great commission. A commission given particularly to the disciples and to those who after him are called to the ministry of the word of God to the nations I think primarily the Great Commission is worked out today through the ministers of the church, whether in a local church or in a, in a mission partner station throughout the world, and then to all believers as they gossip the gospel of the Lord Jesus. 
And Jesus in that great commission, you'll remember, provides two means in that commission. Christ's ministers are to baptize people in the triune name and they're to teach them, baptize them in the triune name and then teach them all the things that are taught by Jesus to the church through the apostles. That's the mission of the church today. So the church uniquely puts on display the reign of Jesus to the world around her. So whenever the church comes together, as we do Sunday by Sunday, what we're doing is, as it were, is we're visiting our local embassy. You know, if you're in a foreign country and, and you run into trouble, you, you go to your embassy and you, you kind of check in there and, and, uh, and you feel secure for a little while while you're in there. If you're American and you go abroad and you go to the American embassy, you're on American soil, the American flag is flying there, you feel a little bit at home. You can get Hershey bars and whatever it is you particularly like that reminds you of, of home. You can get them there at the embassy and you can't get them outside anywhere else. Except that now, of course, you've exported McDonald's so you can be at home anyway. But, but we'll, we'll just can that for, for one minute. That didn't provide any help whatsoever to my illustration. But nonetheless, that's what the Church of Jesus Christ is on earth. It's the embassy of heaven. It's the embassy of the King. And whenever we gather together as God's people Sunday by Sunday, what are we doing? We are witnessing to the world. And this is our primary witness. I need you to, to understand this. We very often think when we use the word witnessing that that immediately goes to the business of me gossiping my faith to other people, telling my story to other people, or, or explaining the gospel to other people. Primarily, the existence of the church in the world in its corporate identity, in its, in its vital, visible identity, is by itself a witness to the world. That growing up people with a, a relatively meager intelligence, like some of you, or, or a higher intelligence, like some of you would like to think, that you should come together and be insulted by someone like me, week by week. <laughs> that you should come together in the way that we do, week by week, in this place, and sing to the air. And should hear the Word of God preached to you, proclaimed to you, from a throne. Is sending a signal to the world that we are people who realize this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. It's sending a signal to the world. Here we are. We are going to be loyal subjects. Or, or no, not subjects. That's what they are in Britain. It's a terrible thing. Royal citizens. Citizens. Right, let me tell you this. It's going to be a great day when I become a citizen because I've longed to be a citizen and not a subject. But anyway, that's another irrelevance here. Scrub that. We are loyal citizens of the United States of America, but our homeland is in heaven. We actually, in spite of the fact we got rid of a king, follow a king. King Jesus is the Lord and head of the church. We are saying to the world, we are under orders. We are under higher orders of allegiance to King Jesus. Back in the 1930s, in Deutschland, in Germany, the Confessing Church drew up the Barmain Declaration, one of the most amazing pieces of literature in the 20th century. 
in addressing what was going on there in the late 20s and early 30s in Germany. In the Barmain Declaration, those confessing Christian people said that no other authority, no other figure or personality had the right to dictate to the church what the church should do, what the church should believe, or how the church should be governed. Because the church's first loyalty was to the Lord Jesus Christ. Over every figure, over every political body, over every personality, it was to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those people that signed that, by the way, they weren't being obscure in what they were saying. They were making it absolutely clear. Nobody doubted for one minute who the personality was that they were speaking against. They had put their lives on the line out of loyalty to the head of the church, King Jesus. The church puts on display the reign of Jesus over his people. So in this first account of a planned overseas mission carried out by the representatives of this particular church, it begins with a deliberate decision under the lordship of Christ, and it fulfills a passage in the scripture that has been referred to over and over again in Luke already, in Sam chapter 2, verse 8, where God says this, I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. There's the decree of God. Here it's being fulfilled. The decree of God is that the ends of the earth will be the possession of his son, now exalted, now crowned, now, now put in the highest place, seated at the right hand of God. This Psalm 2, verse 8, is now being fulfilled. The decree of God is being accomplished as this church formally now appoints Barnabas and Saul to go out and preach the gospel. Mediterranean Sea was one of those barriers they had to overcome, a natural barrier to getting the gospel out to the world. But Isaiah the prophet had clearly seen the day would come when the gospel would overcome even those barriers. In Isaiah 42, one of the passages, again, that's been quoted over and over again in Acts, in Isaiah 42, he says, about the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. And here in this church decision, those prophecies of Isaiah are beginning to be fulfilled as the gospel gets out to the earth. The decree of God becomes fulfilled. And then lastly, the, we, the mission of God is tied up here, not only with God's hand and God's church and God's decree, but also with God's word. Notice what they did as they went out on their mission. They proclaimed the word of God. Throughout Acts, that is the mission of the church, proclaiming the word of the Lord. This is fulfilling Isaiah again, Isaiah 49, as they go out to preach the gospel. Do you notice what they do? They went to the Gentiles, uh, sorry, to the Jews first, to the synagogues of the Jews, and then they went to the Gentiles. And that was in direct fulfillment of Isaiah 49, where God says to the servant, 
It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Judah or of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. That's what's happening here. The word of God is going to the Jews and to the Gentiles to bring about salvation that reaches to the ends of the earth. That's the emphasis on the work they did. Look at verse 5. They proclaimed the word of God. A Roman proconsul in verse 7 sought to hear the word of God. And the story ends, verse 12, with everyone being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And in between those remarks, the stories of Sergius Paulus and this man bar Jesus. Sergius Paulus, a proconsul on the island, living in Patmos on the southwestern coast, an intelligent man whose insight had already been see, is already seen in his summoning Barnabas and Saul to hear the message. And he has a member of his own court, this man Bar-Jesus, who practices black magic. He's a Jew and he practices black magic, an abomination to God. And in our story, Paul, Saul, now called Paul, proclaims the word to the proconsul. And as he preaches that word, he's interrupted by Bar-Jesus, who does all he can to silence the, the apostolic message. And that's what false prophets always do. They want to silence the message of the Word of God. They want to do that because they always resist the Word of God. If you go to Islamic countries today, preaching the Word of God publicly is not permitted. Why is that? Because false prophets want to silence the Word of God. They resist the Word of God. And in the book of Acts, this man Bar-Jesus here, Elymas, his real name, is put alongside three others, or, or several others, one being Simon, for example, in chapter 8, and Herod the king in chapter 12, and now this man, the magician, here in chapter 13, who resisted the word of God, and who were judged by God. Herod, he was judged immediately and died as a, an immediate result of that judgment of God. Here, this man is silenced, blinded by the Word of God. In other words, what we're being shown here is the Word of God is a powerful thing. The Word of God does something which is inexplicable. You look at the book of uh, Isaiah and you discover that when the Messiah comes, he's going to do two things. His Word is going to accomplish two things in the world. It will accomplish salvation and judgment. And we ask ourselves the question, well, I don't mind the salvation bit. I don't mind the idea that preaching the gospel, preaching to the nations is going to bring salvation to the nations. I don't quite fancy the idea that the same word of God that preaches salvation to the nations is also going to bring judgment to the nations. And yet the reality is when you look at the history of the church and when you look at the progress of the church from Jerusalem out into Asia Minor, now Turkey, and then into Europe, and then south into Africa and east to China, and I'm talking about the first century. I'm talking about the lifetime of the apostles. When you see the progress of the gospel in that first century, where the gospel was received, it stuck. Where the gospel was rejected, India, China, Africa, the gospel didn't go there, didn't stay there. 
Eventually, of course, in time, the places that received it rejected it. And as time has passed, the places that rejected it long centuries ago are receiving it, welcoming it, embracing it in massive numbers today. Europe, the most favored continent of all in terms of receiving the Word of God, rejected that word. The 19th century was a century of massive rejection of the Word of God and was followed by two major world wars. Because God's Word is a word of salvation and judgment. And it's judging the nations today. The nations are being ruled by Jesus in the interests of the gospel and of his church. <laughs> so we find Bar-Jesus Bar here. This guy is judged. He is silenced by, by being made blind by the word of God. The word of God blinds as well as opens eyes. And as the darkness falls on Bar-Jesus, the light breaks in the mind of this Roman proconsul. We're told in verse 12, he believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. What happened to this man? He became a believer. He believed the gospel. He acknowledged the truth of the gospel. And you notice you notice what it says here. It wasn't that he was struck by the miracle of the blindness that overcame this man bar Jesus, right, in his company and in his presence. It doesn't say that he was overwhelmed by the signs and wonders that this man performed, that, that uh, Barnabas and Saul performed. It says that what struck him, what astonished him, was the teaching of the Lord. The teaching of the Lord. When Jesus was here, he actually had little time for people who were all worked up and excited about the signs and the wonders because they come and they go. But he was, he was very moved when people received his word. And it's the teaching of the Lord that makes the difference. The teaching of the Lord brings salvation, brought salvation to this man. The overall teaching of the book of Acts is this. The gospel advances in the world by command of the risen Lord Jesus who reigns above in the power of his Holy Spirit through his church, in fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament, and is going out into all the earth until all the earth hears. And then the end will come. We live in times in which we are moving, moving inexorably towards that end. Jesus reigns over the church. He reigns over the church and over the world in the interests of the church. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not, will not prevail against it. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for uh, the gospel, that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe and for the judgment of the world. That... Uh, You've placed into the hands of the church in the gospel the keys of the kingdom of God to open it and to shut the kingdom. We thank you that you've gathered us together tonight as a witness to the world 
that we are under the orders of King Jesus. We pray that he who is our sovereign Lord may be pleased to meet with us now as we gather round his table as his dinner guests and as those with the privilege of tasting from his table the tokens of that banquet he prepares for those who love him. In his strong name we pray. Amen.